The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. All right, do you think you're ready? Do you think you're ready for whatever God has for you in the coming months and years? I mean, whether uh, that's blessings or as we saw last week in our message in Job 1, um, hard times and trials, do you think you're ready for whatever God has for you? The series that we've been in has been uh, about helping uh, make you ready for whatever God has. We've looked at seven uh, biblical characters and seven um, godly traits that would come out of the lives of these characters that we would have in our own lives to help us be ready for whatever God has for us. And this final message, when I started to study it out, I kind of went, you know what, I think this one should have been first in the series. Uh, this, this one is so foundational to everything we're going to talk about. I wondered if it shouldn't have been first, but, but here it is last, and maybe best that we conclude with it to give it the emphasis that it really deserves so that as we conclude this series, this is kind of like the last thing on our minds as we finish it up. And uh, Edmund Burke said this, a true humility, the basis of the Christian system is the low but deep and firm foundation of all virtues. And so in a very real sense, everything else we've studied in this series rests on this last virtue, whether or not you and I are humble. And we're going to look at a conversation in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20, a conversation that Jesus has with a mom, that's the Mother's Day angle, with, with a mom and, and her two boys, and she wanted something, they wanted something really, uh, that demonstrated how not humble they really were. And um, Jesus, of course, sees the moment to teach them and us about humility, true humility. No one modeled that better than him. No one taught it better than he did. And from that, we're going to see uh, today, from this passage, we're going to see what it actually takes to have a humble heart, something that's so necessary for us as the followers of Jesus Christ. And so... Um, We'll do what we always do. Let's read the text together, and then we'll pray, and then we'll start working through the passage together. So this is Matthew 20, uh, 20 uh, to 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, uh, Jesus, with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we're able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them? 
it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray together. Father, I'm thinking of the Sermon on the Mount and and Jesus' opening words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who have come to the end of themselves. Blessed are those who are broken. So God, help us um, see the necessity of coming to the end of ourselves, of being broken for you, poor in spirit, God, help us to hear your word. Help us to live it out. Help us to humble ourselves before you. Father, these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, when you have a humble heart like Jesus, let's start with this. You uh, reject the uninformed, the uninformed pursuit of self, self, point. Point to self, point to self for a second. Point to self, everybody do it. Don't make me go over this twice. (laughs) This is your biggest problem right here. Self is your biggest problem. That's why we need to start right here with self. And and we we often think that our biggest problem is our our circumstance. I'm I'm going through a hard time and it's it's what's going on in my life and that's the biggest problem. Or we think that uh, some person in our life is the biggest problem. I won't get you to raise your hands. But but some person, if only this person wasn't in my life, if only this wasn't uh, happening, if they weren't saying these things to me, then we think that's the biggest problem. Or 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 we we think that the devil's our biggest problem. And listen, um, we found out last week that he can't do anything to you that he isn't given permission to do. And, and really, it's always our decision whether or not we're going to cave in to the evil influences around us. And so really, point again to the biggest problem. What's the biggest problem? It's self. It's always self. And we need to reject the uninformed pursuit of self. And, uh, verse 20 here is this passage begins. <clears throat> I want you to keep that in mind about self. We have a mom. We have a mom wanting what's best for her sons. How many moms in the room? Just raise your hand if you're a mom. Leave your hand up if you want what's best for your kids. Of course, that just makes, and that's all, that's all this mom is doing. She wants what's best for her kids, and that's why she's making this request. But those moms who just raised their hands and said they want what's best for their kids, let me ask you a couple more questions. How many of you moms also would say that you don't know the future? Raise your hands, okay? You want what's best for your kids, but you don't know the future. Okay, great. Let me ask you another question. How many of you would say you don't know the precise will of God for your kids? Raise your hand if that's true of you, okay? Hopefully, your hand was up for all of those because that's all true for all of you. You don't know the future. You don't know God's precise will for your kids, though you do want what's best for them. But because you don't know the future and you don't know God's precise will, could it be possible that maybe, maybe you don't know what's best for your kids all the time? 
See, we, we, have, to, we have to get to that place. Thanks, thanks, moms, for being gracious with me on Mother's Day. Um, as I led you through all of that, Jesus actually says this to the mom. She says, he says in verse 22, Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. I mean, you're uninformed. You think that what you're asking for is the best thing, but you're uninformed. You, you're, you pursue what you think is best for self. And the self here, by the way, isn't even necessarily what the mom wants, but what James and John want. That's really what's being, what's being pursued here. Because it's plainly obvious to me, how many moms, well, more surveying of moms on Mother's Day, how many moms would say that, it, that you are somewhat easily or have been somewhat easily manipulated by your children at some point in your rearing of them? Did you put your hand up? Okay. <laughs> Did you put your hand up? Okay. <laughs> So easy, so easy. And, and it's obvious to me from the text by what happens next that, that, that mom wasn't doing this because she thought it was a good idea. She's doing it because James and John came to her and said, mom, would you go to Jesus and ask him this for us? That she's doing their, their bidding. And it's obvious because when Jesus continues to, to address the question, the request, notice what he does next, partway through verse 22, he says to the mom, you don't know what you're asking for. And then he says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? And clearly at this point, he is not talking to mom, but he's talking to James and John directly. He knows the request came from them. He knows that this is what's on their heart. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? You're asking James and John, you're asking for a place of prominence and power in the kingdom. But are you willing to suffer as I'm going to suffer? You know, when he refers to the cup here, cup was a, it's, a, it's a symbol of destiny. And it can be a symbol of a, of a good destiny, a positive destiny, something awesome that's going to happen. But it can also be a symbol of suffering. And in the case of Jesus, we know exactly that it means suffering. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in fact, when Jesus prayed before he was crucified, he pled before the Lord. He said before his father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup of suffering, the cup that would lead him to the cross. That's what Jesus is talking about here. In their ignorance, verse 22 continues, they said to him, we're able, we're up for it. Whatever, whatever comes, we're, we're ready. And they had no idea. They're so completely uninformed. They're ignorant as to what's ahead for them. Even though Jesus had actually spelled it out for them. They go back a few verses before the section that we started reading, verses 18 and 19 of the same chapter here. Jesus says, see, uh, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. How many people think that's super clear? 
So this is long before the crucifixion actually happens, and, and Jesus is spelling it out precisely, and we read that and we go, I mean, it couldn't be any clearer, but we know for sure that the disciples who were listening to this completely did not get it. Again, moms, how many times have you said something to one of your children, and you said the words as clearly as you know how to say them, and your children did not hear those things? <laughs> Raise your hands. Raise your hands, mom. Children, take a look around. Okay? It never happened between me and my mom. <laughs> or maybe it did. They didn't get it. They didn't hear it. They didn't understand it. The disciples wouldn't understand this until actually after the resurrection. And it would all come to them. They went, oh yeah, he did say that. And now we get it. And so they have no clue what this cup meant. They had no clue about the suffering that was ahead of them. That he would be condemned to death, that he would be delivered to the Gentiles, that he would be crucified, and that he would be resurrected. Verse 23, he actually says to them, you will drink my cup. You will actually suffer, he says to them. And in, Acts, in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, we hear that James that was the first of the apostles, the first of the 12 who would be martyred. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, a John, we find out, is sent into exile on the island of Patmos, and history records for us that he too was martyred for his faith. They would both suffer in their own way because they followed Jesus Christ. Though at the moment they were ignorant of it. And then Jesus points out their further ignorance as verse 23 continues. He says to them, but to sit at my right hand and my left hand, okay, you are going to suffer with me, but to take these places of prominence at my right hand and at my left, that's, that's not mine to grant. God has planned things that you don't have any clue about. And he's calling on them to reject this uninformed, this ignorant pursuit of self. Self likes title. Self likes position and office. Self likes recognition and authority. Self thinks that this is the path to greatness. And Jesus says you have no idea but rejecting that, that's the path to greatness. It starts with humility. Peter would write this, Peter who was right there when all of this was taking place. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So humility is, by this verse, not, not presuming upon the will of God. I don't presume to know what God has for me. I know I'm, I'm uninformed. And then understanding that I, I don't know what God's will is until it's unfolding, I tuck myself under his plan and his will. Whatever you have for me, that's the thing I'm going after. And then waiting for him to lift you up 
And you see, this is, this is the bonus. This is the thing. We want greatness. We pursue it in the wrong way. But God says, I'm actually going to make you great. I am actually, if you're a follower of mine, I'm going to exalt you. I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to give you awesome things. But you got to go about it the right way. The way of humility. To have a humble heart like Jesus. And when you're going after that, you're going to reject this uninformed pursuit of self. And secondly, you're going to reject the undeniable pull of power. The undeniable pull of power. Now, I, I get that there's some people here and you might be objecting right now saying, you know what, I'm not, I'm not actually a power person. I'm not looking for power. I, I, I'm not seeking it out. It's not something that I desire. I don't ever want to be a leader of any sort. It's not... It's not something I'm going after, and I get that those objections are there, but even if the power is over just, listen, just our own life, just us, it still counts. Because we naturally seek to be in charge of ourselves. We don't necessarily like other people telling us what to do. We're fiercely independent. We like personal autonomy. We want to be able to dictate the terms of our own life. We don't like being told what to do or where to go or have someone else that's in charge. The thing we fight most of all is being Lord of ourselves. And so we all have this power play going on inside of us and James and John have it going inside, on inside of them. They were after power. They were after control. They were after status. They were after position and prestige and recognition. And their Jesus-loving, Jesus-following buddies, they're after the same thing. They were no better this whole idea of the thrones, by the way, this goes back to chapter 19. Just look back there, chapter 19 and verse 28. It's all part of the same section and everything that's going on. So just a little bit before James and John's mom comes to Jesus, Jesus had said this, 1928, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, you got to understand that as soon as Jesus says this, the 12 guys that are with him are all getting pretty excited. Correct? Like, they're pretty fired up about this. There's, hey, listen, did you hear what Jesus said? Did I just hear what he said? Did I hear that right? He's going to be on a throne, and there's going to be six thrones to his right and six thrones to his left, and he's going to, and, and, and we're going to be sitting on them if we're following him. And in fact, the heavenly scene that we see in Revelation chapter 4 bears that out where there's actually 24 thrones and 24 elders and 12 of them evidently are going to be occupied by the apostles. That's what they're thinking about when this request comes then. So when James and John asked Jesus about the seating arrangement, whether or not they could get those two prized thrones on either side of Jesus so they could talk to him more often and they could have more influence. Well, the other 10 were kind of put out by that. Verse 24, when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. 
Now, why do you suppose they're angry? Do you think it's like a righteous indignation? Do you think they're just like, oh, James and John are so unspiritual, unlike us, we're very spiritual. We would have never gone to Jesus with that request. Do you think that's what's going on? You think like it's a righteous indignation? Or you think they're just mad because they were jealous and they didn't get to him first? A or B? Yeah, totally. They're just jealous. Now they're angry because they made the first play. Jesus calls them all out, verse 25. Jesus called them to him. Family meeting, right? Let's get everybody in the room. Bedlam is ensuing in the home. Siblings are fighting. Probably never happens in your home. Family meeting, he called them to him and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. He's, just, he's, setting, he's setting up his argument here and he's, he's saying this is the way unbelievers go about it. This request, that's the way the world goes about it. They're about power. No one wants to be overlooked. No one wants to be shunted off to the side. No one wants to be forgotten or ignored. Everybody wants promotions and pay raises and the better office and the awards and the influence that come with it. That's the way of the world. But, but we have a different way of doing it, he's about to say. And, and I, I thought about all these different definitions of humility that I could use, and there's so many of them, but the one that I picked here is from a man named John Dixon, and there's no indication that he's a believer, and that's what I love about the way he analyzes humility and the way he defines it. He's a professor at a university in Australia, and he says this, humility is the noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. Now, again, I don't know that this man's a believer, but I know that he has locked down a very biblical definition of what it means to be humble. I mean, it isn't that power and influence are wrong. It isn't that the desire to be great is wrong. The question wasn't wrong, but the way they were going about it was wrong. And where power and influence are used to, benefit, to the benefit of others, go for it. I mean, the reality is that these apostles that he's talking to, these, these soon-to-be apostles, these disciples of his, he's, they're going to get power. They're going to be the capital A apostles of the church. They're going to teach with authority. Some of them are going to be used by the Holy Spirit to write the scriptures. They would have power and they would have influence from the Lord and they would use it in a way to benefit others. They would forego their status, to use the definition. They would deploy their resources. They would use their influence for the good of others. They would proclaim the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. They would heal those who needed healing. They would bring relief to those who were in desperate situations. They would deliver hope to the hopeless. And they would do it at great sacrifice, at great cost to themselves. Because they knew 
about the undeniable pull of power and they had humble hearts before the Lord and those they served. They used what God gave them for the sake of the kingdom and for the eternal benefit of those they served and that's how it works when you're humble. So reject the uninformed pursuit of self, the undeniable pull of power and embrace instead his unconventional path to greatness. So he's already called out the wrong way and now he's gonna lay out the right way. He says to them in verses 20 and 27, 26 and 27, I'm sorry. That's the way the Gentiles do it. It shall not be so among you. Christ followers do it differently. We're not gonna be like the world at all. And what he's about to do now is take the way we perceive things, the way the world does things, and he's gonna turn that exactly upside down. It's gonna be the exact opposite of what we would think. He's gonna turn the whole thing on its head. But whoever would be great, whoever desires to be great, if that's your ambition, if you wanna do great things for God, whoever would be great must be your servant, he says. And whoever would be first must be your slave. What Jesus is saying here is that pride and ambition lead us to desire greatness and firstness. Do you think that's a word, firstness, or do you think I just made that up? How many people think that's actually a word, firstness? There's like two people who think that's a word, three people. It's actually a word. I'm disappointed in the rest of you. <laughs> a little more study wouldn't hurt. <laughs> greatness and firstness, we're desiring that, but we're desiring it in the wrong way. And we go after these things prioritizing self and looking for power, but Jesus says it's actually in the exact opposite that. It's in, the two key words here are, it's in being a servant and being a slave. Let's look at those two words. The word servant comes from the Greek diakonos, that's the original language of the New Testament. Diakonos is, uh, it, it, we transliterated that into English to make up the word deacon, which is a servant in the church. Uh, the word minister uh, sometimes is uh, what we would find in the New Testament when this word appears in the Greek. So deacon or minister. Now this is to say that this person, there's a, there's a, a sense of some freedom to this, like there was a, a volunteering to be a servant or at the very least, there's a way for the one who is a diakonos, a servant of another, to actually get out of it. That either um, a price can be paid to be released from this kind of servitude, a way out of it, to buy a freedom, or they could be released after a period of time. And so there's a sense of a more... It's a more voluntary thing. The word could also be used to describe an employee, a person who works for another. He's a servant of another, uh, but is getting paid to do so. So understand the strength of that word. It's a good word, and it communicates a lot of what we want to understand, that we would voluntarily give ourselves to serve another. But then Jesus uses his second word, slave. The Greek word there is doulos, 
And this really is a, it's a more uncomfortable word for us uh, because it is uh, now the idea of property or ownership. I'm owned by another. That um, I am completely subservient. New Testament often translates this into English as bondservant because the word slave tends to be more offensive. This is more the idea of slave for life and there is no out from it because I am owned. And I get a sense here as Jesus is saying this, he wants to intensify what he's saying so that they get the point. If you want to be great, you need to be a servant. If you want to be first, you need to be a slave. It's like he's saying, you know, you need to be a servant. No, 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 no. What I really want to say is, so you fully get this, is you need to be completely owned. You need to be the property of another. You need to sacrifice completely. You need to understand this is for life. We serve... I think of this, this phrase here, we serve at the pleasure of the king. If you know American politics at all, that in the presidential circles, that those who would be the closest advisors to the president would actually say, as they deal with the president, that I serve at the pleasure of the president. And those who would serve closest to him would understand that there really is no personal life and if I need to put in the extra hours or I need to stay all night at the White House or if we have a crisis or this needs to be done that I don't serve myself and I'm not looking uh, to advance my own cause that I'm here because I serve at the pleasure of the president. And if that's true at a human level and there's people willing to do that for another person, then I have to believe that we as the followers of Jesus Christ would say, I serve at the pleasure of the king. I serve at the pleasure of the king of kings. And that I recognize I am a doulos in that. I'm a slave to him. He owns me. First Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Paul writes this, you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. And that has implications on our service to one another, doesn't it? If we, if we under, understand ourselves to be slaves to the king, then we understand that that's gonna play out in how we relate to one another. We're gonna come back to that in just a moment, but the whole thing is based on Jesus being the prime example of all of this. He's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done himself. He's, he's not asking us to go somewhere that he didn't go himself. He modeled it perfectly for us. Verse 28, he says of himself, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, he's the example. His death is the example. And if there's anyone who is deserving of exaltation, it was Jesus Christ. If there's anyone deserving of power and authority and recognition and position and office, it's Jesus Christ. And yet he didn't come in that manner. 
It wasn't what he came to do. He came to rescue us, to be a servant, to make that rescue possible. And the path to greatness, because we would all say Jesus Christ is great. And greatly to be praised. But the path to that greatness for Jesus Christ went through the cross. And the path to greatness for you and me goes through the cross. We need to be crucified with Christ. And become slaves as he became a slave. Now what does that, what does that look like for us? What does, what does the humble, unconventional path to greatness actually look like as we interact with one another? I'll jot some of these things down. I have 10 of them. Humble, unconventional path to greatness. It means unassuming service. It means we're modest about what we do. That, that we're even, insofar as this is possible, because very often our service is in front of one another and is for one another, but we're kind of inconspicuous about it. We're not doing it in such a way to advance ourselves. Unassuming service. That's the first one. Or secondly, um, never looking for reward or recognition. Never, never, never looking for it. If it comes our way, praise God. And we ought to be giving it to one another. But if it never comes my way, if I never get a thank you card, if I never get a pat on the back, if no one ever comes along to say that I'm doing a great job, if I never ever get those things, would I still do it? See, the answer is going to reveal whether or not you're consumed with pride or whether you have a humble heart. Third, secret generosity. In your regular giving and in your helping of one another as, as we continue to develop uncommon community here and, and, and seek to be generous and loving toward one another and we know about a need, do we have to do it in such a way that the people know that we help them? Or that other knows, others know that we help them? Or are we okay with secret generosity that no one but the Lord ever knows? Frequent affirmations of others. I love what you're doing. Thank you for teaching my kids. Thank you for the way you're leading. Thank you for your act of service. Thanks for being here early to do that and, and just being so, so effusive in our praise and our affirmations of one another. And even to the point, I'm adding this, even to the point that if someone else gets credit for something that we did, that we're gonna be okay with that. Five, unconditional love. No one ever has to earn my love. I love those who are even unlovely, lovely or un, you know, difficult to love. I love those who have no way to repay my love. That takes humility. Six, rest, uh, resisting the urge to defend or vindicate myself. If you have been wronged, God knows about it. If you have been unjustly accused, 
God knows about it. We know that truth and time walk hand in hand, and in the end, the followers of Jesus Christ will be 100% vindicated by God himself. We don't need to defend ourselves. Let another defend you and not your own lips. Seven, a submission to leadership. That takes humility. To get under God-ordained leaders, to submit to their authority, to not be fractious or rebellious or divisive. And I, I get how this is so hard for us because generally speaking in our culture, and again I would say um, the words of Jesus here, um, uh, uh, it, it should not be so among you, but in the culture at large, people are so suspicious of leaders in general. Leadership has fallen on hard times in our culture. I don't know why watching what happened in our last federal election and watching what's going on in the United States of America, that great country to our south, watching what's going on, I don't know why anybody goes into politics. I have no doubt that many of those, if not all of those who are there, have very sincere motives about trying to help their country. No matter what politic they have, they have a heart to lead their country. And they get shredded for it by their opponents and by the media, by everyone. Why would anybody want to do that? I don't understand it. Because we have this leadership problem. I was talking to some people even this week about the teaching profession and I admired teachers for what they do today because I understand that it's a whole different scene than when I was in school when teachers still had some authority in the classroom. And now parents have made that impossible. They've made it so hard for teachers to do their jobs. Why would anybody want to do that? We have this leadership problem, but it shouldn't be that way with us. Submission to leadership should come easily to those who have a humble heart. Eight, love and respect in marriage. Uh, just, just stop thinking that the marriage is about you. What I, what I see in Ephesians is pretty clear. Um, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's all. That's all? That's, that's as big as it can get. Husbands, are you doing that? Are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? He gave himself for the church. He sacrificed himself for the church. He was a servant to us as sinners. His blood shed for us. So husbands, if, if you're doing that, you've arrived. And if you haven't, you're still making your way. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, a humble heart in marriage means you obey your part of that in Ephesians chapter five to submit to your husbands and respect your husbands. If more wives would respect their husbands, listen, that's the number one thing your husband's looking for from you is that you would respect him as a man. takes a humble heart to do that. In fact, pride is the thing that destroys marriages. And humility builds marriages. 
Number nine, um, appropriate for Mother's Day, honoring parents. Honoring parents at all ages, always. Can every teenager in this room, every college-aged young person who's still sponging off their parents? (laughs) I am not talking about anybody in particular. If you're still tucked under your parents in some way, if you're still relying on them in some fashion, then you are still in some manner responsible to your parents to honor them and obey them. Once you're out on your own, the obey part can be set aside for sure. But the thing about the honoring parents is it's a commandment that's never, never taken away. So for the entirety of your life, A humble person honors their parents. Ten, finally, loyalty and friendship. Standing with each other through through it all, even when it costs me, not moving on to a new set of friends when things get difficult with the current set. Understanding that in a good biblical friendship that I'm at times going to need to speak the truth in love to my friend, and at times I'm going to need to receive a rebuke with grace. And all of that takes a humble heart, no matter what side of it you're on. That's not an exhaustive list. I think there's more that we could have added there. It's not in any particular order for any reason. And for sure I know this, none of that is easy. None of that is easy. And if we really want to live it out, we're going to need the Holy Spirit's work in us to make us ready for all of those times that we're tempted to do it our own way. Humility sets the foundation for everything else and it leads to the greatness that God plans for us. And a little bit later on in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, we read this. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself Listen, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. God means to exalt you. God means to lift you up. God means to do great things in your life and to, listen, make you great. If we'll receive it from him in the way that he intends, let's let God do that in our lives. And I thought it would be just appropriate for us to close off in this way. You know, if Philippians chapter 2 Uh, verses, the first part of that chapter, but verses three through 11, Paul's teaching about this very thing and using Jesus as the model for it, about humility. And you could take this Philippians 2 passage and lay it right on top of Matthew 20, 20 to 28. And you see by way of example and teaching exactly what we're talking about here. So I've rewritten the Philippians 2 passage as a prayer and I'm gonna read that prayer right now. I'm gonna ask you to stand. And if you would agree with the prayer that I'm praying, I'm just going to have you say an amen at the end of that. This is our prayer of commitment to having a humble heart before the Lord. Father, it would be our uh, desire now to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than ourselves that each of us would look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others, that we would have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with you, Father, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in our likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Father, you've highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, our knees will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and our tongues will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory, our God and our Father. Do you agree with that prayer? Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.